0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today on the podcast, we have Professor Anand Deva. Uh, welcome, Anand. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. And today's topic's really interesting. We're going to talk about breast implants, which have been quite controversial both recently and I guess in the longer term. So Um, Can we start by talking about the history of implants and how they've changed over time, Anand? Of course. So the the
1: idea of uh, actually augmenting a breast with an implant goes all the way back to 1962. Uh, There were two plastic surgeons in Dallas, Texas that came up with the idea, actually inspired by the look and feel of a bag of blood. And so they thought, wouldn't it be good to, to stick this into a breast? Uh, and to cut a long story short, they approached a company, Dow Corning, and the first implant was put into a patient in 1962. And then they were approved onto the medical market in 1963. So they've had a long history. Uh, And as you say, they've had a a slightly checkered history because um, uh, they became increasingly popular, uh, not just for cosmetic surgery, but also for reconstruction after women had lost part or all of their breasts from cancer. But in the 1990s, we came face to face with, I guess, the first breast implant crisis where accumulation of women who felt that the implants were making them unwell, a mixture of autoimmune disease, chronic disease, culminated in a class action and ultimately the bankrupting of Dow Corning. The regulator in the US issued what's called a moratorium and banned the use of silicon gel implants uh, for close to 10 years in the US. And so, you know, they've always had this mixture of uh, controversy and and press interest and obviously regulatory interest. Uh, And that's uh, a cycle that's happened, I guess, through the history of implants almost to to today where, you know, as you said, uh, they have become controversial and they've been once again in the news uh, about various safety issues.
0: What do we know about the um, uptake of implants? Um, and, you know, so how common are they? And what are the reasons behind women having implants inserted and armed? So around uh, 20,000 women in Australia
1: each year will get an implant, and around 70% of them will have them for purely cosmetic augmentation. So in other words, to enlarge the breast. The other 30% of women that have implants for reconstruction after cancer, and also some uh, women who have congenital abnormalities of either the breast or the chest wall, things like pollen syndrome or tuberous breast abnormality. Uh, But by far the commonest reason is for cosmetic augmentation.
0: Yeah I guess as a GP, it's often something we're perhaps not aware of as well because a lot of our patients will access the plastic surgery services perhaps without a referral, or the patients won't even mention it as something that they have. So it's, it's probably good to know that there is quite a, a high sort of prevalence and uptake of them in the community.
1: I think that's a really important point, uh, Tim. Uh, These are not traditionally women that come to the GP, you know, either seeking information about implants or, in fact, often volunteering information that they've had implants. So the GP may not be aware of this history for whatever reason. And you're quite right to say that the cosmetic surgery market is kind of, it's a parallel medical industry. Uh, You know, most of us work in healthcare pretty much delivering things that are related to, to the item numbers and to, you know, disease and potentially to uh, traditional medical uh, sort of delivery of care. Whereas uh, in this cosmetic surgery space, it, it's, I guess, less visible. It's less regulated. There are a variety of doctors offering these services. And don't forget, Tim, there are women that go overseas and have these implants put in as well. So it, it's a really, it's an interesting mix of patients, doctors, Uh, I guess, a system that sits almost at the edges of, of, I guess, a traditional delivery of healthcare type system
0: yeah absolutely. so you've mentioned quite a few potential adverse reactions already. Um, can you run us through what reactions are seen after implants and what sort of clinical picture or symptoms a patient might present with adverse reactions?
1: yeah exactly.
0: so where that where
1: the GP needs to be fully aware, particularly now when women are reading the papers and becoming anxious of you know the risks associated with implants, is what would a patient present to you as a GP with a you know an adverse event relating to to a breast implant so The commonest reason why implants fail is what's called capsular contracture. Uh, That's the commonest reason why women present for revision surgery. And what capsular contracture is, is a progressive hardening of the peri-implant tissue. So all foreign bodies, when they're put into the patient, will develop a capsule. It's the body's reaction to the foreign implant to try to wall it off. In the case of a breast implant, it's this capsule that becomes increasingly thick and abnormal and pathologic. Uh, And that manifests as pain uh, initially, and then distortion, hardening. And eventually, if the capsule is so thick and calcified, it can actually cause rupture of the implant secondarily. So capsular contracture, the rates around very easy to remember around five percent at five years, around ten percent at ten years. So it's not common, but it is probably the the first reason why a woman would come to the GP and say, look, I've had implants and I'm now experiencing pain, or I can see a lump or something feels abnormal. So capsular contracture is number one. The second thing that can happen is implants can rupture uh, and they might rupture secondary to capsular contracture, but they can sometimes just rupture because of a failure of the implant. This is called silent rupture. So often you can't pick it up clinically, but uh, on ultrasound examination, uh, you find that the shell of the implant is weakened and and broken. And the contents of the implant, the gel or the the silicon liquid is is, uh, escaped, but is contained within the capsule. And we call that intracapsular rupture. That in itself is not a big problem, but it does mean at some point the implant will need to be exchanged or removed. Much more serious, and this is a clinical presentation that uh, will require uh, a more urgent referral, is where the contents of the implant leak out of the capsule and get into the breast or in, into the lymph glands. And it can set up sometimes an intense inflammatory reaction, redness, swelling, pain. Uh, that's not something you would miss uh, clinically. And certainly uh, referral back to the treating doctor uh, to get this sorted out is something which that should happen quickly. They're kind of the two commonest complications. Other things relate to movement of the implant over time or movement of the breast over time. Nothing stays the same. Gravity always wins. I think there's a famous song that, uh, that quotes that. And so that, implants may move downwards outwards uh, rotate uh, the breast particularly breastfeeding and in, in pregnancy can shift and become loose or hang down so-called waterfall deformity and of course uh, what's been uh, gathering the headlines is this uh, rare uh, implant related lymphoma which is an unusual uh, entity but is, is certainly gathering pace in terms of both number of cases and regulatory attention and so we could talk a little bit about that if, if you like Tim.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly has gathered a lot of attention recently, and there does seem to be a quite substantial number of cases, so so run us through the, the risk and, and the presentation of lymphoma and Sure.
1: So look, this is a, is a curious cancer. It was uh, reported back in 97 in the US. And it was a, almost a, a sort of curiosity until uh, the number of cases started to uh, gather momentum and pace. Uh, we became interested in researching this, gosh, 10 years ago. And the index case in Australia was in 2007. And we've now been involved in uh, a number of publications that have outlined the risk. So what is it? It's not a breast cancer. It's a lymphoma. Uh, it's a T cell lymphoma. The tumour appears in the tissues in and around the breast implant and within, usually within the capsule of the breast, the capsule we talked about before. Uh, The commonest manifestation is an effusion. So suddenly uh, one breast swells up twice, three times the size. It's not something a patient would uh, not notice, and the diagnosis is made, obviously, clinically, but then followed with an ultrasound where the fluid is sampled. And within the fluids exist these uh, malignant anaplastic lymphoma cells. That's how the diagnosis is made. The good news is that we're very aware of it in Australia. And look, thanks to you, know, you particularly and, and GPs and you know, the dissemination of information from the colleges and from the regulator, that if this is picked up early, it's treated by removal of the implant of the capsule and no reason to have any other further treatment. And the latest data, actually just published this month, shows that 87.5% of women in Australia are now being picked up in this earlier stage one presentation and are essentially cured after surgery. So I think that's really testament to the, you know, the good collaboration across, you know, regulators, clinicians, and, um, and obviously industry and, and media to highlight this particular cancer. What do we think causes it? So there's a lot of debate and obviously ongoing research, but we think there are four factors that go into the genesis of this lymphoma. It's certainly the rougher the implant, Australia has been very keen in picking up these very rough surfaces. Uh, they're thought to incorporate into the tissues better but they also form a perfect template for bacteria to grow within the nooks and crannies and over time these bacterial antigens can stimulate the patient's immune system and we think there may be some genetic uh, problems with patients that carry slight uh, genetic defects that then trigger transformation of these T cells into lymphoma. The process takes years so it's seven or eight years after the implant goes in and so it's something that certainly the numbers are rising. Australia I'm unfortunately, has uh, roughly one seventh of the world's cases. And uh, very sadly, we've had uh, four women die from a uh, metastatic lymphoma. So it is something that has got a lot of attention both in the press and through the regulator. But I think uh, to me, it's an opportunity to, you know, reach out to women with implants, make sure they're educated on these risks, and most importantly, have ongoing surveillance of these implants as well.
0: Yeah, and look, I think that's the important point, especially for GPs to be aware of. And let's talk about what, what you would recommend as perhaps follow-up for implants. I mean, is it all implants that need following up and how frequently and how should we sort of follow them up and investigate if need be?
1: This is an important question and it's one where I think if we go back to the original problem, which is that in you know, 70% of women it is cosmetic surgery and it's not really well regulated or reported on that I think we have probably dropped the ball a little bit. And perhaps ALCL is now here as a wake-up call for us in this space to uh, put in some, I guess, more traditional medical structures in terms of patient consent and patient follow-up. So in answer to your question, you know, in my practice, and I can't speak for everyone, 20 years when I started, I made the decision to follow up all women that I put breast implants into for whatever reason. Uh, And look, this works in a number of ways. Uh, I think what it has done for me is it's given me my own follow-up data uh, and through that it's actually i think made me a better surgeon over time because it's nothing like looking at your own results over 5 10 years uh, to make you realize that perhaps uh, you know some of the claims are not quite uh, as they seem uh, it certainly focuses your choice on the, the on the type of implant the technique and hopefully makes you uh, have better and more long-term stable results but the other part of it is that if the patient comes back every year they're reminded of things to look for reminded that these devices are not lifetime devices, that they can't simply take them for granted. And of course, as new information's come out, like around um, this breast implant lymphoma, we can then tell the patient and inform them as to what to look after. So For me, it would be a yearly follow-up for every woman with an implant. Um, And of course, as they get older, you can incorporate breast cancer screening as well. I suspect a lot of women with implants are not actually, you know, screened properly for cancer. There is this almost misconception that if you have implants, you can't have a mammogram. Uh, And I certainly hear that from women that I see come from elsewhere. And that's certainly not true. Mammograms can be performed safely and actually do need to be performed because, as you know, one in eight women will get breast cancer at some point. So there are many benefits to following up your patients, and I would hope that you know the principle of ongoing surveillance is incorporated and hopefully becomes standard of care as we go forward.
0: And really important for GPs because, as you say, a big part of the industry is perhaps being serviced to breast implants sort of by fringe medical sort of elements, particularly if they're travelling overseas, so follow-ups possibly not incorporated into their, their planning. Probably not is not. <laughs> let's let's be let's be clear.
1: I mean, uh, I don't want to get into discussions about cosmetic uh, medical tourism, or in fact, uh, medical tourism in general. But I am concerned about you know the process being accelerated, you know, getting off a plane, already pre for surgery, meeting your proceduralist hours before the procedure, and then uh, put on a plane to go back home. Uh, and, and of course, then you and I are left to deal with the consequences. So um, I don't think that's a really good uh, model of care, really. But I think what this has taught us, and this whole next. Cycle of rest implant attention, perhaps leading to another crisis, who knows? It just focuses on our attention about what it is about being a good doctor, being a professional, being you know patient focused, uh, whether it's for cosmetic surgery, reconstructive surgery, whether it's uh, you know treating a patient with chronic disease. I think as doctors, we need to always be aware that we have a vulnerable, sick patient in pain for whatever reason, and, and our duty and focus should be on them first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps in the more commercial areas of medicine, this can sometimes be lost. I know it's a bit, bit philosophical, but I think it's always good to reflect from time to time.
0: Oh absolutely I guess another question sort of on that on the sort of topic of of follow-up and and outcomes down the track because you would have seen a lot of people many years down the track And do you find when they sort of start on this journey of having implants inserted that they're I guess thoughtfully consented about where it might go and and is an exit plan incorporated into that sort of initial planning process as as in you know someday you'll need to you possibly will need to have this removed and you know this will be the outcome
1: so look, I think for my sins, and I published on breast implant complications over you know two decades now, I do have a large practice in dealing with implant complications. So perhaps I'm the wrong person to ask that question to, because my perspective might be skewed by some selection bias. I do see women who have complications and who tell me that none of these risks were clearly discussed with them. There was this pressure to sign up and have the surgery done. Uh, and of course, the growth of advertising and medicine and you know social media, I think, is a driver for business now in, in every everything not just healthcare sometimes has the capacity to skim over some of this detail. So I can only speak for the patients that I've seen. I can't speak for the ones I haven't seen. But a common theme emerges that practices that offer these implants as cosmetic surgery are very light on the risks. There is this time pressure. There is a pricing sort of advantage. If they book in early, they get a discount or cut-price surgery to sort of try and entice people, offering of finances and potentially rating of super to pay for surgery. I mean, this is a topic with a lot of depth it Tim probably doesn't do justice to skim over the surface of a lot of these issues but um, as I said it it draws down to you know we as a profession you know what are we here for are we here primarily for the patient uh, you know or, or are we here for other reasons and I think sometimes, you know, if we think about what motivates us in in medicine and in healthcare, I would hope that it's primarily the interests, you know, the reward of being able to help people and deliver good care, that that's the prime focus. Now, if you're successful in business as a consequence of that, terrific. All all hail to that. But if it's the other way around, I I wonder whether that's necessarily a good thing for for the profession.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, last question, Anand. How do patients go after having implants removed? Do we see a lot of problems and complications? So implant
1: removal is not an easy operation. I do you know, a reasonable number of these on the back of you know actual implant complications, but also increasingly women coming to us with anxiety related to the risk of this lymphoma and, and other things. There's this poorly sort of defined entity called breast implant illness, uh, which may be in fact related to the original Dow Corning lawsuit where there was a link, potential link between implants and chronic disease. There is certainly a push now, for women to have implants removed and it can be a relatively straightforward operation uh, where if the capsule is very very thick it's often a a relatively easy dissection to almost like shell out the capsule and the implant like a pod in a pea sort of type thing just pulling the whole thing out and with minimal trauma and and bleeding or it can be quite a difficult dissection with the capsule stuck to muscle ribs chest wall and carry you know risk of hemoneumothorax and and other things so implant removal is not to be taken lightly Uh, it depends also on the reason for removal if there's a potential uh, risk of this lymphoma, then it's really important that the implant and the surrounding capsule is removed in its entirety. Uh, Otherwise, there may be risk of recurrence. So it concerns me that a new business model about me emerging, uh, whilst science are a bit on the nose, and perhaps uh, women are starting to think twice or three times before rushing in to have a breast augmentation. I don't want people to then put up explantation as the next business model and uh, prey on vulnerable women who, who may be rightly anxious. So, But the risks of explant surgery need to once again be clearly explained. It needs to be done by someone who knows what they're doing. It needs to be done in a facility where, heaven forbid, there is you know serious complication that the patient can be managed safely, uh, both intra and post-operatively.
0: And thanks so much for answering these questions. It's a really fascinating topic. And as you say, there's just so much depth to it that we really haven't even, we've just sort of skimmed over. So I really do thank you for talking to us today.
1: My pleasure. I mean, the aim of all this is to, is to get us to think, isn't it, Tim? I mean, I think uh, these um, particular events in medicine, you know, you, you can talk about you know, a lot of things that you know, grab the headlines. But the issue is if they don't stop and make us think and hopefully make us change practice, then it's all for naught, because we'll keep making the same mistakes over and over again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Anand.